Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Anxiety Sisters, today you are our special guests as we attempt to answer the questions you asked us via email or on our Facebook page. First of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for such an amazing response. We had so many great questions, really thought-provoking, some that required some research. And since we had so many questions, we decided we'd have to do a two-part podcast so we could get to as many of them as possible. These are in absolutely no particular order. So are you ready to go, Mags? I am ready. Okay, so what is our first question? Okay, our first question is, what combination of meds have you heard works the best for anxiety? Well, we got a lot of questions that were about that, right? Like, which medicine should I take? Which is the best one? So let's just start with one. Let's just make one thing really clear right off the bat. Okay, say it with me, Mags. We We are are not doctors. doctors. <laughs> yes, we don't even play them on TV or no. on the radio, so we just have to remind you of that. That We, we although, don't even particularly like them. Exactly, and we've really spent our entire life earnings on, on various doctors, so we have a little resentment as well. Yes. Um, in any case, we're not doctors, and the reason we're telling you this is because Nobody can give you a better answer to questions about medication than someone who's trained specifically in medication, which would be somebody with an MD or a nurse practitioner is wonderful. A DO is wonderful. I mean, but we don't have any of those initials, so that's the caveat. We're going to give you an answer to your question, but once again, we are not doctors. So you're still going to have to ask the question to your doctor. Here's what the anxiety sisters have to say not being doctors. The first thing we want to say is that, uh, and I hate to I hate to put it this way, but everyone is different. There's no one right answer. We all have different metabolisms. We all have different issues with anxiety. Yeah, and as much as Maggie and I have grown to be so much like each other over the years, we still can't take the same meds. So everybody processes medications and anything that they ingest differently. So unfortunately, Without analyzing your genes and your metabolism, we probably can't give you a really great response. But that said, so there's some there's some daily medications, which is our SSRIs. That's Zoloft and Prozac and Axel, Axel, Alexa, Alexa, is a big one, yeah. right? Lexapro. Those are the ones that you don't take on an as needed basis. You take every day. And if you're getting a lot of either panic attacks or you just have a high level of anxiety, that's something that you might need because it, it's almost sort of preventative. Right. It helps sort of stabilize Once it you. gets in your system. Yeah, once it gets in your system, which takes quite a while. Six weeks at a minimum. You know, I mean, uh, I know some people are lucky, some like people, you, Maggie, yes. but most people say it's six weeks before it's any It's going to take a while before you get relief. And you take it every day. It's not an as-needed medication. And when you take it, there's no immediate effect. It's not a happy pill. Right. You're not going to, within 20 minutes to an hour, feel differently than when you took it, you know. Right, right. So it's not like an, like an Advil, where if you take it 45 minutes later, you should feel some relief. This is not true of an SSRI or an SNRI. They're both classes of meds that are most commonly prescribed for long-term treatment of anxiety or depression. Right. What it's going to do is stabilize 
your moods. So for me, taking an SSRI means that even if I get anxious, my panic attacks are not as severe. Yeah, kind of same is true me, for me. You know, that's sort of what it does for me. Now, if you're not going to take an SSRI, often you will take something called a benzodiazepine. Right, which those are like Advil in the sense that they're fast acting, much faster acting than Advil. Actually, I'm uh, Ativan or Xanax. You've heard of Valium. Yes, the Clonopin. Yeah. Right. So these are these are the major ones, the major players in the benzo field. And those, when you get them in your system, within thirty to forty minutes, you're going to feel more relaxed. It's a sedating drug, so you can expect to feel more tired, and you can expect to feel like the edge has been taken off. And those are the as needed drugs. Right. So. Sometimes people start with an as-needed drug and then they get an SSRI or take the as-needed drug until the SSRI kicks in. And by as-needed, Maggie means that you might take it if you know you get morning panic. You might take it when you wake up in the morning to prevent the morning panic. Right. Or as-needed could mean you literally don't take it at all until you start to feel panicky, at which point you pop one and hopefully within half an hour or 40 minutes you start to feel much more in control. So to answer the question, what's the best combo of anxiety meds, well, for some people, no anxiety meds is the best combo. Uh, for me, the best combo is Prozac and Ativan. That's been my go-to now for about seven years, and that's my best, but Maggie's is different. Maggie Mine is just Zoloft, and plain I don't Zoloft. take a Benzo. Right. And there's some other medications they're prescribing instead of Benzos right now, but basically, for most people looking for medication, it's going to be an SSRI and or a benzodiazepine. One last thing to say is when you do go to a doctor, whether it's your internist, a psychiatrist, which we highly recommend, but we know not everyone can do it all the time, please, please bring our checklist, our questions for your psychiatrist, because you really need to be an educated consumer and know what you are taking. Yeah. Please don't be afraid to ask your doctor, why this particular drug for me? Right. That's on our checklist. So just take that list with you and the doctor should be willing to answer those questions. You can find our checklist on www.anxietysisters.com. If you click under resources, it's useful links and printouts. So our next question is, what's the longest someone told you they had everyday anxiety? I'm five years and I want it gone. (laughs) We hear you, sister. (laughs) I'm 25 years and I want it gone. But uh, to answer your question, some people have anxiety their entire lives. What you should know, though, is that it's very treatable. Anxiety is a very treatable brain illness. And if you haven't had any relief in five years, you may want to either start a treatment plan if you don't have one or change the one you're on. Very few people are treatment resistant for acute anxiety. So there's therapies and medicines and alternative treatments. There's so many things out there. A lot of them you can read about on our blogs. Yeah, unfortunately, anxiety is persistent. It can be chronic, but I think what we're saying is that acute anxiety every day for five years is not acceptable. No, that wouldn't be acceptable. I mean, when I say 25 years to me, I don't mean 25 years of everyday panic. Right. I mean 25 years with mostly... an anxious person. I'm an anxious, neurotic person with a little bit of OCD. (laughs) But... A lot of OCD? Okay, a lot of OCD. And did you just spit on the microphone? And... um, No. No, but, um, but literally if you're having 
intense panic for five years and it's like a panic that makes it hard for you to do things or leave your house, then you really need to get treatment or examine the treatment regimen that you're on. Exactly. Because so, nobody should be panicking for five years straight. No. I, that sounds to me utterly exhausting. It is exhausting. Next question. What does an anxiety-fueled nervous breakdown look, feel like, and how do you know how to avoid it? How do we know when enough anxiety is enough? Wow. Good question. Good question. Very and good we actually question. had several that were variations on that theme. Well, if you're asking about what a panic attack looks like, because that's what we sort of got out of uh, anxiety-fueled nervous breakdown, which it feels like a nervous breakdown. Right. We don't want to trigger anyone, and I don't want to trigger abs right Please now. Please don't trigger me. So I'm not going to describe all of the sensations of a panic attack, but if you go onto many, many of our blogs, we describe symptoms of panic attacks. And earlier podcasts, too. We have one that's devoted to, I think the second episode yeah. is devoted spinning, which is what we like to call it, because yes. it's kinder and gentler, we can give you the specific symptoms there. Sometimes when people hear the symptoms, they they get them. I mean, no one I know, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we know it It can feel like you're having, quote unquote, a nervous breakdown. It is It is very scary. Or a heart attack. Um, okay. <laughs> um, and how do you avoid it? We try not to talk too much about avoiding. <laughs> that ship has sailed. <laughs> it's hard to avoid them if you're already an anxiety system. It, it really is. You can learn how to manage anxiety. You can get fewer spinning episodes or panic attacks. But we actually more recommend something that we talked about in one of our blogs called Riding the Wave, which sort of means going with the anxiety or the panic rather than trying to push it away or avoid it, which usually makes it stronger. Exactly. How do we know when enough anxiety is enough? Well, when your life is being taken over by anxiety, enough is enough. When you feel like it's enough, when you, when your functioning is compromised, when you're not doing things that you would do or not seeing people you would see, yeah, when, when anxiety is making the decisions for you in your life. Yes. Places that you will or won't go, things that you will or won't do. Enough is enough. That's right. when, and like we said before, anxiety is highly treatable. So, yeah. Well, get the help you need. Get the help you, you need. Do Don't go it alone. Okay, this question we've gotten a lot. So here it is. Why don't many people accept or understand anxiety issues? Well, I, I, we have a lot to say on that, so in order for it not to be its own podcast, I'll just cut to the chase. Mental illness has been stigmatized, uh, as you know, if you're an anxiety sufferer, and it's been ingrained in the culture here, where people erroneously think that anxiety is either a decision that you've made, or a choice, or a personality trait, or a weakness. Just they don't understand it, it is a disorder. And I say this all the time to anxiety sisters. It is a disorder, not a decision. And I think that it's it's hard for people to understand if they haven't experienced it. We, we just had one anxiety sister write to us and say that now that she is an anxiety sister, she suddenly is feeling badly about how she treated other people who had anxiety before that she before she had it herself and understood what it was and she feels that she was hard on them. Because it, it is a hard thing to understand. 
right. it is a really hard thing to understand, especially how physical anxiety feels and how physically debilitating it can be. It's very hard to understand that. That's why we don't like to call it a mental illness. We call it a brain illness. Yes. Because this idea that your brain is connected to the rest of your body, it's very hard to understand that because of anxiety, someone has a terrible rash or someone can't breathe or, or any of the other symptoms that we feel until you've actually been through it. Exactly. Um, and not that we're recommending that everybody no. <laughs> become an anxiety sister. We wouldn't wish that on anybody. But people are afraid of what they don't understand. So I would say that that one thing to think about, and, and of course, we're working so hard to destigmatize anxiety. We're trying to change the vocabulary and bring stuff into the mainstream, and that's going to be our life's work now. But, but we also try to be really forgiving sometimes of people who just don't understand, and we feel that the answer is, is education. Right. I know even myself as a social worker, and I went through social work school and worked with people with all different kinds of mental illnesses, there is something about experiencing a mental illness yourself where you realize how completely out of your control your own thoughts can be. I think that's a very hard concept to get before you've had either extreme anxiety or extreme depression or another type of mental illness that that it's it's so much out of your control. Right. And you know, and we're a society that likes everyone to think positive and... Be in control. Be in control. Right? Just get we're up, in control get of our own destiny, right? That's the American creed. Right. And so it's very hard for people to understand, and it's easier for them to say, oh, she's flaky, or she's lazy, or... or for them to say, do you pull yourself together? The doctor said there's nothing physically wrong with you. Right. Which isn't quite the truth. We all know that anxiety means that you have brain misfiring problems. That is something wrong with you. It is something physically wrong with you. And that's what causes all those symptoms. So we encourage people to show people our website. One of the reasons that we've tried to take a lighter tone and do a lot of comedic things is is just for that reason, is so that people will, it'll be easier for people to read and understand what it's all about. It'll be more pleasurable for them to learn what their partners, children, parents, coworkers, etc., are going through, if they're lucky enough not to be going through it. Right. Okay. Our next question, does lithium affect anxiety levels? So lithium is a medication used often for someone with bipolar disorder, but also sometimes very persistent depression. Explain bipolar disorder um, just in case. Okay, so, so bipolar disorder is usually characterized, and there's different types of bipolar disorder, but it's usually characterized by going through very manic states where maybe the person isn't sleeping a lot, maybe they're shopping a lot, maybe they're doing a lot of work. Maybe they're talking a lot. It's they're a high energy phase. Overly high energy phase. Yeah. And then from a manic phase, they can go into what is called a depressive phase where they have all the symptoms of a pretty severe depression. Right. Where they can't sort of get out of bed and move. So they're going through these extreme right. these two mood poles. changes. Yeah. Bipolar disorder used to be called manic depression. So lithium is a medication, it's sort of an anti, it's called an anti-mania medication, but it's used sometimes for, it's used for a lot of different things, but bipolar sometimes for 
certain types of aggression that someone may and be kids showing. Kids a lot, right? And kids, yeah. yeah. I also read that they use it for schizophrenia. In Sometimes, some cases, yes. In some cases, yeah. yeah, so it has a lot of different uses. If you go to the doctor and say, like, I'm very anxious or I'm having panic attacks, lithium is not one of the first things that they would give you. No. Well, Usually, that's a more, it's a more serious medication. Now, here's the thing. If you're taking lithium for something like bipolar, often people with bipolar get very anxious, but you also may have a separate diagnosis of anxiety disorder. So you can have a bipolar diagnosis and you can have a totally separate anxiety disorder diagnosis. So lithium, it should not increase anxiety levels. It, you know, theoretically it should decrease anxiety levels. But if you're finding that you have a lot of anxiety, just go back to the doctor. You may need something else as well. Hard to know. Hard but to know. also, I did read that lithium interacts with several SSRIs. Yeah. So it's obviously something, once again, checklist for your psychiatrist or prescriber. Find out. Every, right. every single thing you take, even vitamins, can interact with other medications. That's a really good so, point. So, right. You know. So you want to make sure the doctor knows you're on lithium and you want to you know, make sure that whatever else you take will not interact negatively. Okay, next question. What about treating anxiety disorders using CBD oil? This is a really important topic and one we're planning to address in an upcoming podcast with a really special guest. So as a little preview, CBD oil is cannabidiol, which is extracted from the cannabis plant, which is commonly known as marijuana or pot. We had to practice several times how to say cannabidiol. Yes, I had to look it up because I thought it was cannabidiol. Okay. <laughs> because, <laughs> because clearly I don't know that much about it. But it's an extract. Uh, it's the extract that's missing the THC, which is the part that makes you high. So the CBD oil. So it's like pot without the good parts. Right, exactly. Okay. It's like pot without feeling high. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so C CBD oil is extracted from marijuana, um, and there's a lot of promising studies out there that we've read. Unfortunately, a lot of them are very small, and they're relatively new. Of course, pharmaceutical companies, they don't always love CBD oil because... Competition. Competition. Right, but here's what people like about it. Like I said, some promising studies that show a tremendous correlation between the use of CBD oil and pain relief. And also nausea relief, like for someone who's going through chemotherapy or any kind of cancer treatment. And there have been some studies that show a correlation between the use of CBD oil and anxiety relief. So this is very promising. And, of course, it's relatively new since the legalization of marijuana in a few states. Now these studies are really picking up steam and there's a lot more research being done. So this is going to be very much in the dialogue about anxiety management. It's edible, CBD. It comes in drop, like a dropper. So you put a few drops on your tongue or it comes in gummies, like gummy bears. Oh, that would be so dangerous. Be <laughs> yeah, I know. You you binge gummy bears. <laughs> I would like binge CBD oil. I, I actually bought some off Amazon. I haven't used it yet, but like they suggested you could use it in salad dressing, like in oil. <laughs> Be like, wow, this really is the best salad yet. I have ever yes. had. Now remember, it doesn't have I know, it doesn't things make that you make high. you high. Um, I, what I've read is that you cannot and should not smoke it. Uh 
I don't know if young people <laughs> listen to that advice, but if you're using it for pain or anxiety relief, then it's not for smoking. It's for ingesting. I've also heard of people putting it on their skin for certain right. types of pain relief. Exactly, like directly on a painful right. spot. Right. Um, so we have not yet tried it, but we're planning to because we're going to be doing a CBD podcast or podcast. So stay tuned. One thing I, sh- I do want to say is that uh, even though it's natural and you can get it over the internet, you still would need a doctor to tell you how much to take. There's still dosage questions. And from what I've read, it can be complicated. So I would go to a physician or a prescriber or a psychiatrist who, who, who understands CBD oil. There are a lot of them that do. And so you can just ask on the phone, does this person prescribe CBD oil? Does this person, you know, work with it? And if they do, great, because you do want to make sure that you're on the right dosage and that you follow the instructions, as as would be true for any medication. But it, it, it does sound promising, and we are looking forward to learning more about it. Maggie's really looking forward to learning more about <laughs> it. <laughs> All right, here's another question. Does anyone experience visual changes and loud sensitivity during a panic attack? And that, how, that means like sensitivity to noises? I think yeah. so. And and a visual sensitivity. Got it. Um, and how many experience nocturnal panic attacks that wake you up out of a sound sleep? I also have GAD and people say, don't worry so much. But that's what the disorder is. Um, we so hate that. We do hate that. <laughs> when people say... <laughs> don't worry don't worry it's like people when you're having a panic attack and someone says just relax calm down yes never in the history of calming down has anyone ever calmed down being told to calm down so that was actually a few questions packaged into one but about the visual changes and and noise sensitivity during a panic attack that makes total sense to us. I definitely experience light sensitivity, noise sensitivity. A lot of people do. We've had a lot of anxiety Smell sisters and talk taste about sensitivity. Yes, that certain things taste really strongly when they're having yeah, a lot of anxiety. Yes, or, yes. Yeah. All types of sensory changes and bodily sensations, as we call them, happen during anxiety, not just panic. But particularly during a panic attack, those yeah. can be really acute. So the answer to the listener is yes, that's really, really common. And it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, right? Right, because your body is being hypervigilant. So when you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, when you were in danger, so there was the town lion or woolly mammoth coming <laughs> along and... And you're eating berries or something off the vine, and, and they're really good. Maggie, you would have been eating milk duds off the yes, vine. Yes, <laughs> I'm eating milk duds off the vine, and they're really good, and I really don't want to stop because I haven't eaten in a few days. But that woolly mammoth is coming toward me. <laughs> Abby's being the woolly mammoth. And and so if my body didn't get into a hypervigilant state, like if, if, I, if my smell, sense of smell, my sense of sight wasn't hypervigilant and didn't sort of propel me to run away, I might not have known to do that. So from an evolutionary point of view... Yes, your body becomes very heightened. All your senses become much sharper and much more honed when you're anxious. Right. Right, because you need to be able to hear things that you might not normally be able to hear. You need to be able to smell things you might not be able to smell. So that's why you get those sensory sensations. Yes. Nocturnal panic is 
fairly common. Some people say up to 60% of people with panic disorder get it. So some people get woken up from a panic attack, which is really not a pleasant way to wake up. But even in sleep, they're not getting peace from their panic attacks. And they know that it happens sort of in between sort of a lighter phase of sleeping and a deeper phase of sleeping. It's really disruptive because it takes away from the restorative part of the sleep. So what we're trying to say is don't ignore it. Um, it. It might be worth even getting a sleep study if you have panic attacks. Um, if it's, if it's frequently enough, you should definitely invest in a sleep study because it could be something more serious like sleep apnea or GERD. Those are the two. GERD is reflux disease. Gastro yeah, reflux those are disease. the two that even though it feels like panic, it could be one of those two things. Those are the two biggies. But it could also just be panic and you treat it a, a lot of the same ways, therapies and other ways that you do a daytime panic attack. Cognitive behavioral therapy, medications, all the same things. The usual. In other words, nighttime panic and daytime panic. The treatment is very similar. The treatment is the same. Well, would you believe we just answered, I think, eight questions, and we still have a lot more to go. So stay tuned for part two, episode nine of The Spin Cycle, where we will tackle more of your questions. Thank you for listening, and remember, Anxiety Sisters... Don't go it alone. You have been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved.